kingdom of the planet of the apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1969. Two podcasters, Goldie and the Gap Tooth Kid, set out to discover America. The movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson, and I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Today we are talking about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But before we get into that, we're going to go back to last week's episode and talk about Jaws. Amy. People were mad at me, very much so, for even bringing up the conversation that Jurassic Park should replace Jaws. And I didn't even say that. I just said, it's an interesting debate, but people were furious. Wow. Yeah, you totally were like, some people are saying, ha ha, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, honestly, when you brought it up with me, I was very open and I still feel like I want to rewatch Jurassic Park to solidify my opinion on this. I'll be honest. It's a bold move. I like a bold move. Yeah, I had a lot of people come at me and say that Jaws is a better plotted film. And that I kind of disagree with. I think they're very different films. Um, But they're also both revolutionizing the summer genre. I mean, Jurassic Park created something that changed summer blockbusters. And I think Jaws changed summer blockbusters. But one is definitely more of a... I always think of Jaws as a more adult film. I mean, like... Uh, there's no kids in it. It's a, it's adult problems. I mean, the kids are in it, but they're, you know, they're on the side. It's, it's very much like, uh, the kids are snacks. Yeah. <laughs> That's where they belong to be. Kids are snacks. But, uh, I love that this debate was raging on, but I, I imagine that there was no debate in our Facebook group that everyone wanted this to stay on the list. <laughs> There was no debate in the Facebook group. Everybody loves this. But I will say that there was a small mutiny on Twitter led by the film critic Eric Vespi. Hi, Eric, who was like, 
how dare you say that Jaws 2 is not that great? He really led oh, yes. the, the, a surge of people who are passionate and say that Jaws 2 is the best Jaws, which I will never understand. It's for only people who like regatta drama. Oh no, what boat's going to win the regatta? What's going to happen? Regatta, regatta, regatta. If I you want know? regatta drama, I'm watching Summer Rental with John Candy. Now that's a regatta <laughs> I can get behind. But I appreciate the passion for Jaws too, and I will say, Eric and um, all of his uh, minions making me walk the plank on my opinions about Jaws two have convinced me that I should watch Jaws two again this summer, which I can because here we are, summer. I am also going to join you in that challenge because uh, the response to Jaws two is pretty overwhelming. People just thought it was a really well done sequel, so uh, you had soured me on it, but now I'm going to give it another shot. Uh, what I can say is this: no one likes Jaws three. I feel like there is a little Whoa. bit of love for Jaws four, but Jaws three, no one likes it. And if you want to hear some more thoughts about Jaws four, we pulled that out from our How Did This Get Made vault, so you can listen to me, June Diane Rayfield, Jason Manzukis, and Jake Fogelness, uh really get into all the ins and outs of Jaws four: The Revenge. I like Jaws 3. I can't believe you dissed on Jaws 3. I grew up in a SeaWorld <laughs> town, man. Jaws 3 is my Jaws. You know, another thing that people were talking about was Verna Fields. You know, we put a little bit of a spotlight on her, and I think it was a warranted spotlight. Uh, there was one person who was very upset that, you know, we were saying that Spielberg had a disaster and she came in and saved the day. And I don't think that we ever said that, more to the point that she was an integral part in making the film as successful, as dramatic, and as good as it could be, uh, you know, she, in many respects, gave that shark a personality. And to most people, I don't think they understand what a role an editor and a casting director play. I mean, probably also a DP to a certain degree. But all these people that don't have all their names and spotlights sometimes uh, get forgotten. And they are really the reason why some of your favorite movies uh, exist and are cut the way they are. And we talk a lot about that with Martin Scorsese. So I am never uh, going to apologize for signing, shining a spotlight on, uh, on an unsung hero like Verna Fields for her amazing contribution to this film. Me neither. We salute you, Verna. This is something interesting from the Facebook group. Brett Bendixson said it was interesting to hear them call out background noise uh, because this is one of the first films to have background voice actors. Uh, an interesting podcast on the topic is Gimlet's Every Little Thing, and the episode is called The Voices Hiding in Your Favorite Movies. You know, um, one of the things that you do when you're putting together shows is you have this voiceover session where you bring people to do the voices for every scene, a restaurant, law firm, whatever, they they come prepared. I've worked with so many amazing teams. They're called like a loop group and they're amazing actors. You can give them any challenge whatsoever. If you need a room full of people speaking Spanish, they can do it. If you need a room full of doctors, they can do it. They add such atmosphere. I've worked with uh, so many great loop groups and loop group directors that's a skill in itself that they really fill in. They give so much life to scenes. You don't even realize it until you see it with and without uh, voice background. Uh, it's it's pretty shocking. Also, Paul, you know, I think you opened um, a can of worms and maybe a can of like inner emotional turmoil with your theory about Brody and his scar oh, yes. and what's Brody's whole life before that. You know, Paul Johnson had a really interesting comment on the Unspool group. 
he said, you know, here's how I think he really was. I think Brody is a former NYPD cop who is suffering from PTSD from being shot on duty. And you get this alluded to during the conversations that Brody has with his wife. And Brody's major drama is that even though it makes sense when his wife later is like, we should move back to the city, we should move back to the city. Brody can't face what happened to him in the city. So he has to fix it here. This is where he has to make it work. And that is why he he is so devoted to fixing Amity, a place that he just lived in for only a couple months to this point. Well, you know, um, I firmly believed in that theory, but was slapped down by multiple people online and even Roy Scheider himself. Uh, apparently him lifting up his shirt was improvised. It was an appendix scar. And uh, you were right. I was wrong. I dared to dream and just like uh, the phoenix, I was burned by the Twitter flames. Everyone just brought me down. All I wanted to do was create a, a little bit of a fun story. Well, you know what? I'll have my fun and I'll keep it private from now on. But you know what? Speaking of hidden dramas in this movie, there came a very, I found, revelatory, possibly incendiary, possibly true tweet from none other than Ben Dreyfus, son. Ooh. Of Richard Dreyfus, And he said, you know, here's the thing that everybody gets wrong about Jaws, including my dad. People all think that Jaws killed Ben Gardner, you know, the man whose flag yeah. we see floating in the ship. He's like, no, that is wrong. Ben Gardner is actually murdered by Quint, his local fishing rival. Oh, I love and that. Quint is using the shark as a way of getting rid of murdering the people competing with him. I like Quint as murderer. Um, <laughs> Amy, last week we asked everybody to call in with their takes on an interesting film festival. Um, and, uh, you know, what could be a reason to gather around? What could be a thematically interesting film festival that hasn't been thought of before? So let's take a listen. Fredo Fest, where you celebrate the really crappy guys that just couldn't, you know, do the right thing, like... Fredo or the brother-in-law at Rocky, who is just kind of a piece of crap in general, you know, those guys. Cool. I think it would be really great if there was a Dorothy Michaels film festival from the movie Tootsie that was all about movies that had drag queens in them and characters that experimented with gender bending. I would want an Alex DeLarge film festival where only real horror show pictures of ultraviolence would be shown. For me and my Drukes to watch. Hey, I'd like to invite you to the Atticus Filmch Festival. This year we are showing The Verdict, A Few Good Men, and Amy's favorite young-looking actor, Joe Pesci, in My Cousin Vinny. I would like to see the Desmond Festival for new silent film, because who needs dialogue when we have faces? Amy, I got to tell you, I'm into Fredo Festival. That seems like a, a character actor's dream right there. Just, you know... <laughs> Crappy guys that couldn't do the right thing. <laughs> well, I'm saying if there's an Alex DeLarge Film Festival, tell me where it is and I will be on the opposite end of the country. A whole room full of <laughs> ultraviolence people. That's my ultimate nightmare. I don't think I want to be anywhere near that crowd. All right. So, Amy, are you ready to uh, to pop open our, our penultimate AFI episode? As ready as I'll ever be. Well, here's the, here's the tin, the film tin, and I just got to oh, unspool it. They were the best days of my life back in the summer of 69. Ah, oh, summer of 69. Woodstock, the Stonewall riots, Apollo 11, the Manson murders, and the inauguration of Nixon fill up the headlines. The San Francisco Giants manager teased they'll put a man on the moon before pitcher Gaylord Perry hits a home run. Perry proved him wrong by hitting his first career homer less than an hour 
before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first humans to walk on the moon. Bill Cosby wins a Man of the Year award and jokes that it ought to be renamed the Nice Guy As Far As We Know Award. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Hot movies of the year are Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy, Hello, Dolly, and today's film, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Rated number 73 on the AFI Top 100 list, down 23 points from its position on the previous list at number 50. Let's take a listen to a clip. No, no, not yet. Not until me and Harvey get the rules straightened out. Rules? In a knife fight? No rules. Well, if there ain't going to be any rules, let's get the fight started. Someone count one, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. I was really rooting for you, Butch. (laughs) Well, thank you, Flatnose. That's what sustained me in my time of trouble. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It is the story of Butch Cassidy, played by Paul Newman, and the Sundance Kid, played by Robert Redford. Two handsome, likable, charming, funny, smart bank robbers who'd wind up trying to run to Bolivia to escape their fate and evil destiny that they cannot escape. Uh, Along for the ride is Catherine Ross as Etta Place, the girlfriend of the Sundance Kid. And this is a movie directed by George Roy Hill and written by William Goldman, the screenwriter who wrote so many movies we're going to end up loving after this. Stepford Wives, Princess Bride, Marathon Man, All the President's Men. This is a charming as hell, sun-dappled heavy hitter of two movie stars just doing what they do. Yeah, this movie is a very light touch Western. I don't know what I expected from it, but it wasn't this. You know, this movie feels very much like a film of just like people in the 70s kind of having a good time. I don't know. And and especially when you look at what it came out against, you know, Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy, The Wild Bunch. This is decidedly not that. Yeah, we keep talking about this year incessantly, right? And it's interesting to see them all now put together in context. We brought up Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid back when we talked about um, Midnight Cowboy, because this is the film where at the Oscars, the director of Butch Cassidy, George Roy Hill, came up to the producer of Midnight Cowboy and he's like, don't feel bad you're going to lose tonight because we're so likable. Everybody's going to love us. And then, of course, Midnight Cowboy wins, you know, but it Butch Cassidy is this like sunshiny movie that rode into this year as everybody's wrestling with like, what is a cowboy? You know, is a cowboy a hustler from Texas who puts on like a fancy shirt and goes to New York? Like, what is this American man ideal that we're looking at? Is it Jack Nicholson on a motorcycle? Is it the wild bunch like riding into the frontier? It's like, it's such a year of looking at what the American male myth is that we're telling each other and everybody fighting about it and coming at it from different directions. Yeah. And this one is decidedly saying, no, no, no. We want to embrace the old way of doing things. The, the kind of sweet, fun cowboy. It's actively not making a statement. Yeah. It, it, it almost to stack up Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid against the wild bunch. I think it's such a great example of this year and the range and also the range and what kind of stories we want to tell and how, because Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid knew the Wild Bunch. They hung out with them. You know, there there's a picture of all of them together. And yet one one filmmaker wants to take that story and turn it into what's really like a lot of the time a light, fun comedy. And the other one turns it into like the bloodiest, grossest, like you will look at the face of Carnage movie of all time. And yet at, they they touch each other in history. They they connect and get pulled apart for two very different reasons. And just from a historical context, they were 
part of the Wild Bunch, Butch and Sundance. But because the Wild Bunch had come out, they just changed the gang name to the Hole in the Wall Gang because they didn't want to basically, I think, be associated in that same idea. You know, they didn't want to they wanted to kind of keep their own, uh, you know, sides of the uh, the movie theater. What I appreciate about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is that it's a movie that I don't think is hiding at all the fact that it's trying to talk about storytelling and myths. I mean, this is a movie that opens up with a shot of an old-timey film, very clearly an old-timey film, you know, not even just the sepia tint, not even just the the kind of ridges running down the film, but it's you see it diagonal against one half of the screen. It couldn't be clear that you're watching a screen of what the West looks like. You know, this this image of people getting their fantasy close-ups, you know? Mm. And, and and saying, like, here is how we tell these stories about the men in, in the West. And we're going to tell one in our own way, but we're going to keep reminding you that this is about storytelling. You know, the characters in this movie even say things like, I don't want to be there for that scene, or let me just watch this. It's all about watching the story of these two men get constructed and how. I feel like this film really clearly, like, starts like a silent film, where even the the shootings are kind of, like, bloodless and big and funny and fake and then gets realer and realer as it goes on. You know, I wonder if there's a part of this film or an idea behind it where it is talking about the end of this era. Because in watching it, it's these two white men who have been idolized, you know, the fastest draw in the West, and they're and they're tough, and they they kind of run their whole gang, and they're being chased. They're being chased out of their home. And there is maybe an idea behind this of like, this is the story of telling the end of these characters. So, you know, from on the surface, it looks like, oh, this movie doesn't make a statement at all. It's just about these lovable guys. But when you really look at the film, it's also about how these guys are, their days are numbered. This old look at the West. It's numbered and we, we connect with them and we can watch and the film can work on two levels. But I was really looking at this film and, and going, I wonder if that is an underlying current here. Like the days are numbered for you and your stories. One of my favorite moments in the scene is when they try to enlist in the Spanish war and they, you know, they've captured a lawman and they're trying to get him to, to say that they can um, become soldiers. And he just flat out says, your time is over. But it's too late. You know, you should let yourself get killed a long time ago while you had a chance. So you may be the biggest thing ever hit this area, but you're still two-bit outlaws. I never met a soul more affable than you, but you're faster than the kid. But you're still nothing but two-bit outlaws on the dodge. It's over. Don't you get that? Your times is over, and you're going to die bloody. And all you can do is choose where. I'm sorry, I'm getting mean in my old age. Come on, shut me up, Sundance. As we've been doing this show, I've been realizing how interested I am in stories about characters that I think in my imagination I always pictured were happening in the early 1800s. You know, I think I always mm-hmm. picture all Western stuff is happening like really early on. But honestly, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were still around and robbing trains in the early 1900s. Like they were around at the time of film. You know, they were there yeah. as film was there. I mean, honestly, you know, one of the really great famous first films, The Great Train Robbery, 
that's supposedly inspired by Butch Cassidy and Sundance themselves. It's inspired by a holdup they did just three years before. So it's like you're kind of telling like real living history through fiction. They were there at the very beginning of this myth making. And, you know, one of the things that that is important to recognize is that when film and cameras come about, your job as a bank robber gets harder because people can see a picture of you and they know what you look like and they know that you're the guy, which is a right. thing that actually happened to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They got their picture taken and everybody's like, hold on, now we know who you are. In Bonnie and Clyde, I feel like we kept talking about this, this idea of people on the run looking for fame, building up their own stories. And you, you see in both of those cases how it helps and hurts. You know, there's a scene that was cut from this film where uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid are in a Bolivia cinema and they're watching a screen reenactment of their gang. And they are just ruthless killers, just gunned down by the law. And they are watching from the seats just so upset. Like, it didn't happen like that. You know, I, this is not us, you know, and they are they're railing against this image of them. I'm kind of bummed that that scene was cut out from the film because I do feel like this movie does something really interesting where you see how they perceive themselves versus how other people perceive themselves. And I think that these could be very violent men. They're thieves, they're criminals, but they are connected as these brothers. This is a bromance. This is a whatever you want to call it, like they don't, their violence is basically treated the way that they justify it. It does. Yeah. And if people want to watch that scene, we can't really play a clip of it, but it is online. It's just, it's online right. without any dialogue. So all you hear is silent movie music. So you can't really see what's happening, but you can read the subtitles of what they're supposed to be saying. And it, it's so interesting because one of the things that Butch and Sundance say when they're watching this, you know, old timey fake, like reenactment of them murdering a bunch of people is they say, like, why do they want to show something like that for? Like, they're offended by even the idea that audiences want to see this violence, so that they're upselling violence to get people to watch. Which, um, I mean, honestly, it makes me think of somebody even in the movie theater watching The Wild Bunch that same year. Like, why do we want to see this? Like, what is there, the sick urge of audiences to crave this violence and be repelled by it at the same time? You know, I think knowing Paul Newman and Robert Redford, they always are making something that has a little bit more weight to it. And while on the surface, you know, my first gut instinct is, oh, this is an odd little film. This is, it seems so light. I think that they are actually doing something that no Western had done before, which is really humanizing characters and really creating a camaraderie. It's what you said about story. I think you see Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in, in movies like Die Hard or, or more importantly, the buddy cop genre of, the 80s, you know, that this is very much a buddy movie and it has all the tropes of a buddy movie. Um, and I feel like what they do here that's different than Wild Bunch or other Westerns. Other Westerns, it's a very like, I'm a cowboy. I'm going to stick up for what's right. And the Wild Bunch is like, we're animals. We don't give a fuck. You know, they kind of bridge this gap of making themselves incredibly likable. You can follow. I mean, they're anti-heroes, but they're you barely even get to see what they're doing bad. Like they're, they're being viewed, their bad stuff is being viewed so lightly that you kind of just are along for the ride. I agree. I think what's so fascinating about the way that, I mean, I guess I'm thinking about it like a poker game, maybe because this movie starts with, with, um, with Robert Redford playing poker. The way they deal the deck in this movie mm -hmm. is that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are really awesome. You know, they're just 
amazing. The coolest. They're the coolest. And bank robbing is fine, honestly. Like, we don't really see it not being fine because they're not hurting people. There's little bits of like, you know, they blow up Woodcock. They have that really fun back and forth with Woodcock, the man who's protecting the train. Woodcock. Yes, sir. You know who we are. Uh, uh, you're the hole in the wall gang, Mr. Cassidy. I understand that. But you've got to understand Mr. E.H. Harriman himself of the Union Pacific Railroad gave me this job. And I've got to do my best, don't you see? Your best don't include getting yourself killed. Dynamite's ready, Butch. Mr. E.H. Harriman himself, he had the confidence of... Open the door or that's it. You think E.H. Harriman would get himself killed for you? Woodcock? I work for Mr. E.H. Harriman of the Union Pacific Railroad. And he entrusted me. And yet, you know, it's it's played for laughs in the scene. They're sticking up for him. They're saying, like, you should deserve a raise. We like you, Woodcock. They're so nice to Woodcock that when you see him again, and there's a little shot where the camera recognizes that because of Butch and, Butch and Sundance blowing up his train car, he has scars and bruises on his face. That's the most recognition you get of the fact that they're doing something bad. You know, and the, the film doesn't right. comment on it. It shows you it. It takes the time at least to show you that and say there are consequences to this. But it moves on. I mean, usually I feel like in a film that's structured like this, like here are the guys and they're running from the law. You'd have at least some scenes with the law. You know, the guy nope. catching him. Yeah. And you yeah. never do. And the way they talk about the law is so interesting. You know, here, here's Redford theorizing on who they are. You're beginning to get on my nerves. Who are those guys? You remember the time you and me and Etta went to Denver that summer for a vacation? I'm glad you brought that up, kid. That's an important topic considering our situation. The night we went gambling, you remember? We had dinner at the hotel. Etta had roast beef and I had chicken. And if I can remember what you had, I'll die a happy man. Look out there. What? We got to talking to some gambler that night and he told us about an Indian. A full-blooded Indian, except he called himself with an English name, Sir Somebody. Lord Baltimore? Lord Baltimore, that's right, and he could track anybody over anything, day or night. I mean, think about the characters he's describing, right? This, like, tracker who's better than anyone, this tracker who can do anything. It seems like that's a character that the movie would want you to meet, right? They describe him so much. Like, imagine, imagine having a scene where that guy's like, gotta go find Butch and Sundance, here I am going across the rocks, and the movie's like, no. That guy doesn't matter. We don't care about this side of the story. But what's so interesting is it's so allows you to be connected to them. You're on their side. You're only seeing their side. Even when they make that deal with the uh, I'm, I guess he is one of the owners of the uh, the prostitution uh, place. Uh, they can they send him outside. You don't even see that scene from his angle. You see it through their eyes out the window. Everything is at a distance. You only see what's in front of our characters. And I think even going backwards before they're on the run, that's what allows like that five-minute bicycle scene to happen in this movie. It's sort of like they they are simply playing and there's there is almost no pace in the film because there's nothing bearing down on them. I mean, yes, the law is bearing down on them, but because you don't see or cut to that and feel that, okay, they're getting closer, you just kind of see it through their perspective. So in that that opening sequence, you can exist in goofily riding a bike to raindrops keep on falling on my head. But I think that that's actually a very conscious choice and a really interesting way of telling a story. 
Yeah, right. You're exactly right. We exist in this pod of two people. And then they expand it for a little bit to include Edda. So it can be three people. But it's really just these people. Yeah. And you're so right. I'm thinking about that scene when you talk about them at a, at a distance where they're up at the brothel and they're talking, they're sharing each other's real names for the first time and saying who they really are. And they're talking about how they always imagined themselves being heroes, which contrasts so interestingly with what's happening right below them. You know, the marshal of this town is basically trying to pull a high noon. He's like, we have these train right. robbers here. We need you guys to join me and find Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kids. And in response, I, I love this clip. Let's play it. That is why you and you and you are riding with me. Am I right? Well, what do you say? I say this. I say, ladies and gentlemen. Boys and girls, friends and enemies, meet the future. The future what? The future mode of transportation for this weary Western world. Now, I'm not going to make a lot of extravagant claims for this little machine. Sure, it'll change your whole life for the better, but that's all. Now, just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Well, you got the crowd together. That's half my job, so I just thought I'd do a little selling. Well, I'm trying to raise a posse here, if you don't mind. Got a short presentation. The horse! Is dead. You'll see this item sells itself. Are you going to listen to him? I mean, think about this contrast that we have here. Like the average civilian in this town, we're being told, only cares about making money and being a salesman and, you know, what he can get out of this. This like one version, I guess, of capitalism where Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, who are supposedly doing all the crimes, they want to be heroes. They want to be heroes, but nobody else seems to be interested in that. I think what they want is to just be recognized for being as good as they think that they are, you know, and, and they go about that in different ways, you know, whether or not it's, uh, you know, at the end when they decide to go straight or whether it's them contemplating whether or not they should join the army. I think they just feel like we're good guys, right? We're, I mean, we're good. They're justifying it's a means to an end, but it's not who we are. And I think they're always kind of fighting against what they actually do and who and how they want to be perceived. You know, this term antiheroes thrown around a lot. And I think in all of our TV lately, we're, we're seeing these characters that have this dark side to them. We never see their dark side. Um, you know, we only see them as the way that they want to be seen. And I think that is very rarely done anymore. And I wonder if we've now transitioned that that becomes sympathetic. Do we not want to become sympathetic? Like, would you not, you know, if we just saw Walter White's perspective in Breaking Bad, would we not be able to indict him on some level? I don't know. I mean, have we become as an audience unwilling to just sympathize without uh, consequence? Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a this summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG 13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Gosh, I mean, I feel like as audience members, our ability to sympathize is our best attribute and sometimes our most self-destructive attribute. Like we just can't help loving whoever we see bigger and larger than life, especially if they're funny and charming. And in all of their conversation, I would say basically laying out the template for every Marvel movie where it's like, oh, Mm. buddy, buddy, we're going to make fun of each other. I mean, so much of what Butch says, you're just like, oh, you put all of his personality into Iron Man. You know, I'm going to make fun of my teammates and then we're going to get the job done, but I'm going to say quips all the time, which honestly sometimes I think can be done worse. When Butch Cassidy and Sundance make jokes when they're in peril here at the end, I kind of love them more. I don't know why (laughs) that is. I feel like there's a way of laying out the joke where it's endearing and then there's a way of laying out the joke where it's distracting or cocky, funny, mean. Well, I, I, I forgive these guys. I go back to kind of the grittier buddy cop films like like Lethal Weapon 1. I think Lethal Weapon 1 does a great job of of having those those relief moments. But I want to just address one thing, too, which is George Roy Hill took out a lot of the comedy scenes like this is the version that is with less humor because he felt like the audience was laughing too much at these characters, which I thought was interesting because going back to our sympathies. We like this character. We want to see them, but they don't even let us see them get killed. It's almost too much for us. It's like, you know what? We're going to end this story here. Did they die in that moment? Yeah, they did, right? I mean, they couldn't not survive. Like, they were up against insurmountable odds. But they eliminate that last sadness. And I think if you were to talk to people at the end, like, and you said, did they deserve to be killed? People would say no. They didn't like they're just bank robbers. They're just this. And that is really interesting to me. I think the film does a a tremendous job or a very aggressive job at not bringing any reality into it or not bringing any of the real world in. If that's not showing the villains, if that's um, not showing their death, if that's really not even showing how Catherine Ross really feels, you know, about being this kind of third wheel in this bromance where she's kind of interchangeable. I think the only moment that you really see a real reaction from her is when like, uh, you know, uh, when Robert Redford's like, nah, you can keep my girlfriend. I don't care. Like, and she could see she's a little offended by it, but the movie is so protected from the outside world. And, and maybe that's how this film was in 1969. Like, like we don't want to hear any of this. We don't want to see, the easy rider. We don't want to look at the wild bunch. We just want to kind of live in this comfy, warm, look, our time is fleeting. So let's enjoy it while we have it kind of a a moment. Yeah. I mean, letting them not visibly die feels like a choice that I can see it functioning on a few levels. You know, one, people have been trying to say forever that Butch Cassidy and Sundance like actually survived and made it out of there somehow, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it makes me think of almost childlike wishful thinking. I want to be able to imagine them continuing on, you know, 
as a, as a oh, person absolutely. who loves them so much. And it feels, it, I don't know if it feels like it underestimates the audience or not, but you can't deny that that freeze frame is just mythic. The way they're posed like that, leaping into air, uh, the way Redford's kind of snarling at the camera. It's larger than life. It's larger than life. And, you know, this coming out, like two years after we saw Bonnie and Clyde get shot to pieces, I wonder if people were able to exhale a bit and be like, okay, you're right. I don't at least have to see that happen to these people who I, I mean, adore you, so much. You but, don't you know, even really see blood. I mean, they get shot in the back. I mean, this is very much like a John Wayne Western, like the lack of blood, especially considering the year, you know, half the year of the Wild Bunch and after Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, that's kind of funny that they've made all these choices to avoid all of that. Yeah, I mean, that last scene you have where Sundance is teasing Butch for thinking they're going to get out of this and make it to Australia. You 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 almost don't hear in their voices that Sundance seems to have already been pretty much fatally shot. You know, he's... Yeah. We, we logically know he's in a lot of pain, but they're playing it so light and so funny, even in this moment. Australia. I figured uh, secretly you wanted to know, so I told you. Australia. That's your great idea. Oh, boy, it's the latest in, in a long line. Australia's no better than here. Oh, that's all you know. <coughs> Name me one thing. They Name speak me one English thing. in Australia. They do? That's right, smart guys, so we wouldn't be foreigners. Got horses in Australia. Hell, they got thousands of miles we could hide out in. A good climate, nice beaches. You can learn to swim. No, swimming isn't important. You know what it is? I, I've been thinking about this a lot about this movie. Is I don't feel like Butch Cassidy and the Sentence Kid is a biopic by any stretch of the means. Like, I don't feel like this is a movie that's trying to tell me the story of these characters, even in the way that, that Bonnie and Clyde is. I feel like this is a movie that operates almost on just such a gigantic mythic level that they're really just stand-ins for this idea of destiny. Do you know how like in the Greek theater, there's this idea of the furies? Mm-hmm. And yes, what the furies yes. are is like, you've done a crime, you must pay for this. Usually it's a crime where you've like killed a family member. And the furies, you know, these these vengeful, they're not exactly goddesses. I forget what they are. There's some sort of like harpy, interstitial part, like the most ancient type of primitive god that there is in the Greek mythology is what these come from. They will just track you down and eventually you will have to atone for your sins. And I I feel like, to me, my favorite section of this is the middle section because that so clearly is this idea. Like here at Butch and Sundance, there's no way that these people should be hunting them so well, hunting them so ruthlessly. And yet they can't do anything. There's no escape. And I it seems like that section should feel really slow, but to me, it's just riveting. They ride and ride and oh. ride and the guys are still there. And it's just this thing. They can't escape what they've done. They've done something that they will always catch up to them. Well, I mean, that that there's that line from the, the person they meet. There's like, you guys should have been dead already. Like, you know, you like they're on borrowed time. And that's and that's why I keep on going back to this idea. Like, is this the most subversive movie of 1969. And I look at these characters and I see them as making a statement. Like this is a last hurrah. Now, of course it isn't, but in 1969, it feels like, could they have made a movie that is exactly what Easy Rider is trying to say, but it's just not on its sleeve? No, that's so interesting. I mean, if that, 
it definitely didn't work, whatever that uh-huh. is. It, it was like, oh, that's such a great film. It's such a great hit. Let's just make a million movies where like a bunch of guys bro around and they're really funny. I mean, there's a theory that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid being so likable is almost what made it so that the 70s did not have a lot of movies with women at all. They're like, ah, we're great with just these guys rolling around and it's totally fine and totally fun. You know, all we need is the dynamic of a couple uh, likable, wisecracking guys and we're good. Right. But yeah, there is, it's interesting, this idea, because death haunts this entire film. I mean, it feels like every time in every scene, somebody has a way of saying the word death or end or hunting. And the movie just looks at Robert Redford's face and he doesn't say anything, but he registers it. You know, Robert Redford seems to know the end is coming no matter what. And Butch always has like this energy that they can talk themselves out of it. They can get out of this somehow. Well, it seems to me like Butch is telling this story. It's like, did Butch really beat that intimidating man with a knife with, you know, a uh, a kick in the groin and a punch in the face? I don't know. That seems to me like Butch telling a story in a bar, you know, and it, it seems to me like I was shot in the back. We were hiding out in this small little hut and we faced the entire Bolivian army and we got away. Like, I feel like it's so much that energy. Like, it's the story of... It's the story of a drunk person at the bar going, and this is my tale. Like, it feels so alive in that way. It's like he's an unreliable narrator. This movie is an unreliable movie. Because I kept thinking, especially during that Bolivian showdown, that nothing in this movie takes place in the world of audience logic. There's never Mm -hmm. a point in that shootout where you're supposed to go like, okay, well, if they get the guys on the roof and they get those guys over there, like, that's like nine, ten guys we can get, blah, blah, blah. There's no, the movie never gives you any chance of reality. Do you know, like yes. there, there are so well, many killers. There are so many people lined up. It's it's ludicrous. It's like clown car, ridiculous. And it forestalls your brain from thinking there is a way out. It's just like, here is now the end. Here comes an impossible army. And, right. and yeah, it, it, I appreciate, I almost appreciate that they take away this idea of hope or this, I mean, hope is like the wrong word because you do hope they live, but also, you know, they can't. You you exist in this liminal space of hope and also overwhelming futility. I will, I was thinking at the end, I was like, wouldn't it be great if when they you see the army lining up on the rooftops, everyone has their guns. They're all pointed at this hut. Um, if you cut inside the hut and they weren't there, like that to me feels like how the movie almost should have ended. Like, well, where did they go? What happened to them? Like, you know... Um, because it really, like, why not just go the full way? Like, wh- you know, I guess maybe it's cooler to have them go. I mean, that last shot is iconic and that the freeze frame and we go back to the sepia tone in which the movie started off with, you know, they become legend. They become film. You know, they stop being these re- real characters and they become part of this thing. And this movie is legend because there's a part of me that thinks they shot that prospector. I know that they were guarding him, but that's a story that they would tell in the bar. Oh, yeah, we were we were guarding a prospector, and then these banditos came, and we we got the money back from them, but unfortunately, they killed the prospector. Like that seems to me like just covering their stories. Like you know, what? we're going to rob this guy. We're we're not going to be good guys, but they tell the story to make them look better than they are. By the way, you know, thinking about their pursuers. So many things hit me when you see them introduced, when you see them chase, that made me think of other films that I feel like have this, have a little bit of a nod to it. I mean, when that black train pulls up, I kept thinking like, whoa, this is Mad Max, right? That first shot of the train carrying these chasers, it looks so Fury Road to me. And then just the chases themselves, the way they pursue, the the distance we have from them. 
I kept thinking about the Lord of the Rings and the Black Riders. You know, oh, it's just wow, yes. Right? Isn't there this kind of like epic mystery to them? Yeah, I love that idea. Well, it's interesting to put it in comparison to like other westerns of the time in which what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be ashamed. You're supposed to finally be like, "Okay, I will face down all the bad guys." You know, and I will do this heroically. When honestly, that's what Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid try never to do. You know, this is a Western where they spend most of their time running away. You know, they don't even run to Bolivia as a last resort. They run to Bolivia as a first resort. I mean, it's in the opening scenes of the movie. They're like, hey, let's go to Bolivia. What's your idea this time? Bolivia? What Bolivia? Bolivia, that's a country, stupid. Central or South America, one or the other. Why don't we just go to Mexico instead? Because all they got in Mexico is sweat. There's too much of that here. Look, if we'd been in business during the California gold rush, where would we have gone? California, right? All right. So when I say Bolivia, you just think California. You wouldn't believe what they're finding in the ground down there. They're just falling into it. Silver mines, gold mines, tin mines, payroll so heavy we'd strain ourselves stealing them. <laughs> you just keep thinking, Butch. That, that's what you're good at. <laughs> Boy, I got vision and the rest of the world wears bifocals. And so what I think is so funny about that is like, I feel like most Westerns are always building towards this inevitable showdown where a man stands up and does what he has to do. And this is a movie where they try to never make that happen. And then it finally has to come to them. Well, I, I also love that on the way to Bolivia, they just go and party in New York for a long period of time, too. Like, they're on the run, but they're not really on the run. You know, they they seem to take a long break in New York. Oh, I love all those things. Speaking of that New York sequence, it's so well done. And again, plays with this idea of, is it film? Is it pictures? Is this true? Is it a story? And they were shooting next to the Hello Dolly set, which had this amazing period uh, correct version of New York and they wanted to shoot there, but they didn't want them to shoot there because the Hello Dolly sets were a little bit sacred. So they just went over there and stole these like stills. And it makes the montage so much more interesting, I think. I think so too. And I think it adds to that idea of reminding you that this is recorded visuals of history, of like how we see history being made. You know, it makes you see the history being made in action. Because there are only a few photos of Butch and Sundance. And what I thought is so interesting is like Butch and Sundance were actually pretty attractive guys. I was doing that thing when I was watching this movie again of thinking like, man, Redford is perfect looking. Newman is perfect looking. I bet the Greel guys were a bunch of trolls, you know, being played by (laughs) perfect looking guys. And no, they were actually super handsome for the time. Like, well done, men. Well done, gentlemen. Just to call out uh, that Jay Sebring, who you might remember from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a famous Hollywood hairdresser of the day, uh, was actually uh, Paul Newman's uncredited hairdresser. And Jay Sebring doesn't live to get to see the movie hit theaters. He gets killed by the Manson family a month before. Oh, God. It's, uh, yeah, Jay Sebring, kind of a real Hollywood insider in the sense that he was, you know, at the forefront of men's fashion especially in their hair i mean not in their clothing but it's so interesting because he was steve mcqueen's guy steve mcqueen actually originally supposed to play uh a role in this movie he drops out that brings in robert redford uh but it's but these two guys this is cool like i I, when i watch this movie they look great their outfits are great 
And they're just cool. They're effortlessly cool. I kept on just thinking about that throughout the whole whole picture. Like their jokes don't seem forced. The action doesn't seem overexerted. They just seem like they just have this. Like I feel like Larry David has this. Like he looks like a feather being blown in the wind. And and both of these guys have that air to their performance. It's just sort of like there's no care in the world about how they are. And I think it's, it was kind of refreshing to watch. Exactly. I think that that is something that George Way Hill talked about a lot with Newman, you know, because Newman has most of the comedy lines. And they were saying like, you know, there's a difference between being funny. Like here I am giving a performance. I'm delivering these lines as though I'm the comedian in this story. You know, I'm being kind of quip. I'm doing the, the Groucho Marx thing with the lines, which apparently like when... Uh, Paul Newman would get nervous about delivering a line. He would start to do it like Groucho Marx. They'd have to stop and reboot and be like, no, the way that you do this line, it's not, you're not trying to entertain, you're loose. And you're a loose humor. And loose is very different than staccato humor. It's hard for me to imagine Steve McQueen in this movie. I mean, apparently part of the story is he he pulled out because they couldn't get the billing straight. That Steve McQueen and Paul Newman were the two biggest stars in the world at this time, the two biggest male stars. And... And, and Steve McQueen was like, I don't think I'm going to get enough poster credit size on this. They were arguing about like the font size oh, and whose wow. name goes first and what and can you do it in this half of the world? Can can Steve McQueen be put first and blah, 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 blah. And they could never get it to figure out. So McQueen walked. But it, I think McQueen would have added such a different kind of cool to this that almost would be generic. Yeah, I think the McQueen cool is too cold, really. To, to be in this movie. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I th- no, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Like, I think people often think of Steve McQueen as the coolest cool cat. But these guys seem, I don't know, I guess more personable than I have ever felt with Steve McQueen. I never feel connected to Steve McQueen. Like, Steve McQueen falls in the camp of, like, like young uh, Clint Eastwood to me. Like, okay, I get you're cool, you have an edge to you, but there's a little bit of an edge there. Like, these two guys feel like you want to hang out with them. I think it actually makes the movie work. By the way, you know the movie was originally called The Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy because that's... And Steve McQueen was going to be the the first name. Like, he was going to be the Sundance Kid. But then, (laughs) maybe it's such a bizarre thing that they they switched the character names based on the fact that Paul Newman was more successful or a bigger box office draw than uh, Robert Redford. But I think uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid it falls off the tongue so much better than Sundance Kid. Yeah, the Sundance Kid, Kid Butch and Butch Cassidy. Cassidy is such a ridiculous name. I mean, one of the names that I heard is that Paul Newman was supposed to be the Sundance Kid. And when Robert Redford met with George Roy Hill, he was like, I think I have to be the Sundance Kid. I think I'm more that type. And I think Newman is, is should, be the, should be Butch Cassidy. And so then they just switched the title to make Newman feel okay. Yeah. But exactly to what you're saying, I mean, I can only come at this from like the female point of view. But if I was at a coffee shop or a bar and Steve McQueen was like at the bar, I'd be like, oh, he looks interesting. I don't want him to come anywhere near me. Whereas <laughs> if it was Robert Redford, I'd be like, please say hi to me. 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 It, there's just something softer about him in the way that he does this film. And I think that it's hard sometimes, I think, to talk about attractiveness in movies But I think we have to in this instance, because this is a movie where I feel like the casting the most attractive men as possible is one of the superpowers of this film. I mean, right. This movie doesn't work as well without these two. I kid. I 
couldn't separate myself from that. I was like, these two guys make this movie as good as it is. Yeah. I mean, they are both just ridiculous looking human beings. If we can be honest, they're just as a species, these two guys are insane. I mean, they both of them have maybe the only blue eyes that register as blue in sepia toned film. You get that shot and you're like, oh my God, his eyes are blue and I can see it even though they're technically beige. They have this just hands down movie star quality that even some of the movie stars from this era that I love, you know, like I can't see Anthony Quinn being like this. You know, you'd be like, that's a cool character. I like him. But there's nothing aspirational in the way that an Anthony Quinn character walks on screen in this kind of a role. And so I don't know. I mean, when I watched this movie, I kept thinking so much of of Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it's not, right? right? Like just that kind of casual, silent, taciturn, strong. Redford said that the whole time he played Sundance, he he played it as though every time he looked at a person in the frame, he would think, will I kill him? Will I kill him? Like that's just Sundance's running note is will I kill that guy? Will I kill that guy? And I feel like you can see that in Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that his cliff is just looking at a person being like, should I beat him up? I could beat him up. I could beat him up. I could beat him up. Maybe not should I, but just I could, reminding right. himself of every person he meets that he could win if he had to. Yeah, he does carry himself in that same way. Now thinking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and J.C. Bring and, and the relationship between DiCaprio. I mean, it's a different relationship between DiCaprio and, uh, and Brad Pitt's character. I mean, I think what is interesting about that film is DiCaprio lets himself really be seen in front of Brad Pitt's character, but outwardly he kind of carries himself in that way. In that kind of, uh, you know, I think together, if they were walking on the street, that's just me and my stuntman. They have that energy. It's only behind closed doors. Do you see that one of them doesn't have that energy, you know? And, and, and by the way, Brad Pitt faces insurmountable, you know, an insurmountable force at the end and, and, and handles them all, you know, he should have probably been dead, but he doesn't, you know, I think once upon a time in Hollywood, is a fairy tale, right? It's a retelling. It's, um, it, you know, whether it's the fight with Bruce Lee or it's that ending scene, whatever you want to take from it, they share similarities because it's it's a, a heightened version of reality. It's, you know, yes, there's some true facts. Like this movie, we're going to talk to an expert about what the the true the true nature of this these characters and these situations are. But it's based enough in truth that you can identify with it, but it's heightened enough that it will you leave feeling good and you leave feeling good. Our main characters die and you're like, I love that movie. But you don't like there's no weight to that end scene. And I think that that's what I mean, there is, but there isn't. You don't like it's the only time I've ever watched a movie where our two main characters are going to die. And you're like, cool. And and maybe it's because death has been chasing them and they already were lucky to be where they were. But that's a really tricky feat to pull off. You know, when I think about it, honestly, Wild West cowboys like this seem as though they really were prototypical actors or like movie stars, right? Because we even know in here that they've like come up with new names to sound cool and tough. You know, they've recast themselves the way people would do when they show up and they're like, I was Archibald Leach and now I am Cary Grant. I mean, that's exactly what happened here, you know? that there was a little kid from Utah who grew up, he was a Mormon. And then he wind up, he winds up being an apprentice to a butcher. And so he's like, I'm butch. And then he has a friend named Cassidy and he's like, all right, well, I'm Cassidy too now. So I am butch Cassidy. It's all self-creation. And then you learn 
by reading stories about what other bank robbers are doing. And you're like, okay, I'm gonna do that. This is my script for how I become a legend. So Amy, are we uncovering the fact this movie is really like a metaphor for like being in the Hollywood business? I mean, I was looking at it more about the death of the white male, but maybe it's it's the sausage factory of the American actor. The, you know, it's, it's we use them up. You are along, you are around for longer than you thought. The, the, the villains that are coming after you, they're not trackers. They're just the next version of you. Like, you know, they're the next butch in Sundance. And you know what? And then you'll be put out the pasture and a new one will come in. And people will always remember you as you were in the frame of the film. I mean, this is a movie bookended by, you know, sepia tone film frames. Maybe this is a metaphor for Hollywood. I mean, it feels like it, right? Yeah, it, yeah. Now, now I'm getting excited. Yeah. It really does. I mean, I'm such a sucker for stuff that questions the stories we care about and why and why do we care about them and what have we been told about them and what what makes this story more relevant than any of the others? Because you know, when you think about even the internal character struggle, one of the things that we're always told is important for a movie, like does the character grow and change? What I find so amusing about Butch Cassidy in The Sundance Kid is that they've done so much to try to leave behind the frontier of America, go all the way to South America, you know, go to Argentina and then come up through Bolivia, which is a really long trip. And yet the thing that they cannot outrun is their own choices. There are people who right. love to rob banks and, and trains. And you know what? They're eventually just going to keep robbing banks and trains and the same thing is going to happen to them again. They cannot escape the main flaws that they have. And it's when right, they try it, the hardest, when they try I, to go straight, that they wind up killing people for the first time in the film. But it's also like, I don't think it's like that they love robbing banks and trains. It's the easy way to live the life they want to live. They don't want to have consequences. They don't want to have to be responsible. And when they do take a job, they're forced to be responsible. Like, yes, what you're saying is true. Like, they do have to kill somebody. But I think it's a difference between their perspective. Like, oh, my God, the first time I had a job, I was forced to go against what is something that's so me, which is not kill anybody. But the truth is, is when you enter into society, when you're a cog in this machine, you do have to make choices. You do have to work in a system. And it affects people. And I think that there's so many people out there who are like, not for me, and you can go into the not voting of it all. Like, I don't like any of the candidates, so I'm not voting. And it's like, well, fuck you then. Like, no, like you, you can't like just pull out of the system. Like you can't like, and I think people, a lot of people take it on like, I'm doing it. I don't care. And it's a failure to grow up in a way. It's like, no, we are, we are all agreeing to be a part of this. We all have to to do it. And we're not going to do things that we don't like because we're a part of it, but it's for the greater good. It's, it's not selfish. And these two characters are selfish. I mean, they just don't care. And, and again, we're seeing it in the best possible way, the lightest, funnest way, but they are selfish people. That's why I think I'm so drawn to, to Catherine Ross's character, to Etta Place, mm -hmm. because she's the one who actually makes a choice. You know, they're trying to sort of casually wheedle like, you'd be, you'd know Spanish. It'd be nice if you'd come along. And she has this amazing scene right here where she agrees, I think, full knowing the consequences that they won't face, you know, full knowing what she's getting herself into. And it'd be good cover going with a woman. No one expects it. We could travel safer. What I'm saying is if you want to go, I won't stop you. But the minute you start to whine or make a nuisance, I don't care where we are, I'm dumping you flat. Don't sugarcoat it like that, kid. Tell her straight. 
I'm 26, and I'm single and a school teacher, and that's the bottom of the pit. And the only excitement I've known is here with me now. So I'll go with you, and I won't whine, and I'll sew your socks, and I'll stitch you when you're wounded, and I'll do anything you ask of me except one thing. I won't watch you die. I'll miss that scene if you don't mind. And again, yeah, one of the details I love about that is she's she's talking about it in the same way. She's referring to their death as a scene. She won't be there for that scene. And so it's just those little dialogue choices that kick this movie, you know, up into the land of myth for me. In many ways, she walks out before the end of the movie. And even the director's like, I'm going to make you walk out before the end of the movie. I'm stopping the movie right here. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Catherine Ross as an actress, because I think of her more as a camera op uh, on this film. <laughs> Did you know that? That... That she was dating the DP of this movie and she came to one of the um, the train robbery days and uh, the cinematographer of the film said, oh, you, you can operate one of the cameras. And just, I mean, this is the beginning of the end with her relationship with George Roy Hill because he was livid that she was operating one of the cameras. She hated him. She said that like one of the best days on set was that second unit of doing the bicycle riding sequence because any day away from George was a good one. Well, he banned her from set because she touched a camera. He banned her from set. I mean, here is a movie all about buddies and buddy chemistry. And like, you're going to take the only girl on the set and say you can't even come and hang out with us anymore. Banning her from set for that, that's insane. I mean, and part of it is maybe there were no female DPs at the time. And so like the men in the union were like, we are. Right, right. You know, but I think he took it way too far. This is another one of those cases when you read about how the set went, you know, where the director's like, everybody was great, but the woman was difficult. And it's just like, God damn it. I'm so tired <laughs> of that. And also, I like the montages in this movie so much. You know, I love I love the music of like the Bolivian jazzy music right here. Yes. contrast of that fun, 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 fun song over them robbing banks. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. For your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. What did you make of the scene where we first meet her and we meet her under the context of Robert Redford has broken into her house. We don't know that she knows him and he's making her undress. 
which is the most the movie skates up to the line of can we make Robert Redford unlikable? Because as you're watching I, that for the first time, you don't know what is happening. A hundred percent. I was kind of shocked by it. I was like, oh, this is darker than what I thought. Okay. And then I was like, well, this is going to be even more problematic. Like, does he like attempt to rape this person? Because I knew that she was one of the lead actresses in the film. And it was like, then did she like fall in love with him? And so it got me. It, to- it totally worked. Just like that amazing scene with Andy Garcia and Meg Ryan in, uh, in whatever romantic comedy they did, where you just, you didn't know it was happening until it happened. Uh, but no, I, I think there's, I think this is also setting a tone. Like now there's so many scenes like this, like this play acting scene where you are introduced to a character and then your expectations get switched. Yeah, there's so much relief when she finally says, I wish you would get here on time. Oh, it's like, thank God. I, th- yeah. I, I love Catherine Ross's acting in this scene because she doesn't betray it at all. You know, her face is perfect for this in yeah. the dead on way. She's like staring at him because even when you know it after the fact, when you know what happens and you rewatch it, it's still a perfect face. You know, she's still doing right. it. Not She's not overacting and making you think like, oh, no, he really is attacking her. She's doing exactly what's credible for that character in the scene, but in a way where you don't know how to read it yet. I I really just want to talk about the acting for like one more second here too, because what you're saying too is no one is pushing. I think Catherine Ross is great in this film. And I just love watching her react to, you know, Paul Newman on the bike too. There's something so endearing. I mean, that's probably the most FaceTime she gets in the entire film, just watching her react to these men. And it sets up uh, in many respects the way that she will be. But I think that they show her to be smart in a couple of moments, like we just talked about, like she gets out early. She knows what they're, what she sees the future better than they do, but she's willing to have fun with them up until she doesn't want to do it anymore. I just think that though, the acting across the board here is so, is so slight. I I really, and it's what we talked about with the coolness and the line delivery. It's everything is done and very, you know, I don't know. It's, it, it, we talk about Brando embracing a style of acting here i think this is another style of acting that i think paul newman really cultivated i mean to be honest i get a little heartbroken almost by the raindrops keep falling on my on my head sequence because it's with it's with butch that Edda place looks happy you know she never really smiles around redford she's almost never having fun when redford's there you know they have this really serious i think deep dynamic in a way but Redford is when you actually get to see that character have a, a happiness and a life to her and a light and I, I yeah I mean I respect that this movie doesn't make their big downfall the woman that they both fell in love with like it never becomes an issue where I don't know where Butch like shoots Redford in the leg so that he can have at a place and he can get away from the escape like that's never that's never in question that her entering the film will make them turn on each other that their bond is still the strongest bond among all. But I do yeah. wish for I wish for more for at a place. She has so much fun with him. They just seem to have like this intellectual connection. But I guess I mean, maybe that's maybe that's me telling on myself. Like I love an intellectual connection more than I'm like that deep ah, I must like have you in my arms right now. If right. you made me choose if I was Etta, I would choose Paul Newman all the way. But maybe other people disagree. <laughs> no, I see that. You know, talking about this intellectual thing, I think it it comes back down to like 
the simplicity and the acting choices. And I think Paul Newman is so known for that style of very understated. You, you get so much out of him. And I think he appears to be intellectual, even though he's an impulsive character in this movie, you, you feel his heart, I think more than Robert Redford in the film, like you see him more. Um, and it's interesting because he went to the same school as Marlon Brando, the actor studio, and they both come at it in very interesting ways. I think, you know, Marlon Brando is a, is a physical actor who really embodies things and, um, and is in the moment. But I think Paul Newman is very internal, but yet they're doing so much emotional work that I think it elevates the characters and, and their performances in ways that you could never, you know, it, rely, it allows you to like live in those characters. And I think that's why they both feel realized they're not the same style of acting, even though they went to the same school, but they, they have that same kind of weight and gravitas to them. It's true. I mean, early on, you can see that casting directors are kind of plugging in Newman into Brando-y type roles. Like when he does say Cat on a Hot Tin Roof or something, mm -hmm. it feels like, oh, we would have wanted Brando in that too, but Newman is great. We'll take this Newman guy. They have almost the same intensity to their look. And it makes me wonder, you know, I, I vaguely do think this is true about Marlon Brando, that Marlon Brando almost gained weight to be taken even more seriously, that he was uncomfortable mm. being so pretty. We don't talk that much about like how prettiness hurts male actors too. Like it definitely is a thing I think with female characters where they're like, she's too pretty. We can't see her as that. Or she's too pretty for this or blah, 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 blah. Or their prettiness makes people think that they're just pretty and not talented. And I wonder, so I can't ever shake the idea that Brando gained weight so that people would only respect him for his craft and not his looks. But Paul Newman at least let himself make the choice of I'm going to try to have both as did, as did Redford. Like I'm going to try to stay handsome. I think Leonardo DiCaprio, to be honest, did the exact same thing. I think Leonardo DiCaprio made himself look like a frog so that people would take him more seriously. <laughs> I'm serious. That, like, he made a choice after Titanic to stop being hot. I, and I'm, I, I said this on the show before and I'm saying it again. I'm seizing this moment. I, I, uh, I can't, I do not, uh, I, I do not agree with that. I, I don't think that he is trying not to be hot. I, I, think, I think he is. That, okay. I, I think that he is. If he is, then God, man, then no one has any hope in the world. Like he, I think that he stopped making himself look like a boy. Uh, and I think that that like, there is some truth to that kind of a thing. I think Brad Pitt also stopped making himself look like a boy and, uh, and made himself look like a man. And I think DiCaprio, you know, has a younger face, so it's harder to wrestle with. But Paul Newman never really had like that boyish face. I think he had more of a man's face, if that makes any sense. See, I think there's certain, you know, like certain actors that can look more charming and boyish. I think Paul Newman looked like he lived a little bit of a life. I think that's why, like, Slapshot, like, he, you buy him in Slapshot. It's not like, oh, look at this attractive guy playing in the hockey, you know, or whatever, you know. Like, he just had looks like his final old man face is not very different than his younger. I mean, obviously, it's aged up. But it's not like, oh, my gosh, like, Robert Redford, incredibly different look, you know, um, or maybe I'm, I'm trying to think. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, Robert yeah. Redford kept his hair. And I, I think yeah. a part of why I was thinking about it, especially in this movie, is this idea of like male beauty and the problem is because Redford had been really paranoid about getting typecast as a handsome blonde. Like he, mm -hmm. he had this really outside perspective of himself. Like people see me as a handsome blonde. Like I've been told I'm too tan before for certain parts. I've definitely been told I'm too good looking. He, it got so much in his head that he turned down some things that we've actually had on the list. Like he turned down being the young hot husband in Virginia Woolf in the movie version because he was oh, worried wow. that he would be too much of like a blonde pretty boy stereotype. 
And Mike Nichols was like, you are making a huge ass mistake. And he was like, no, 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 I don't think I am. But I think he I think he did make a huge ass mistake. And the same thing also happened with The Graduate. You know, remember we were talking about that there. Everybody thought that that yeah. role in The Graduate should go to, to Redford and not Hoffman, which is ultra surprising when you add in the factor that Redford wasn't that famous yet. You know, like right. it's not until Butch Cassidy and the Sentence Kid that he becomes that famous. And he's turning down two star making parts because he's worried about being typecast as just like a handsome, ineffectual blonde man. That's so interesting. I mean, again, is this movie talking about like, cause the new leads, you know, the leads of easy rider and, and uh, midnight cowboy and wild bunch are not these good looking men are not these traditionally good looking men. You know, um, uh, John Voight obviously is, but he, you see him kind of, not decompose, but kind of get worn down from it. And I wonder, again, is this a metaphor for Hollywood? I think it is, Amy. I think it is. I mean, this movie, I know one thing that the movie is beloved. I mean, how was it received when it came out? I mean, it didn't win the Oscars, but how did it, you know, how did people think of it? Actually, the critics didn't love it. When this movie came out, the critics were like, oh, it's fine. They they kind of rolled their eyes about it more than I was, was expecting. Um, and lots of them, lots of critics, even Roger Ebert, sort of middling reviews of it. Like it's likable. I think maybe there was a sense that it was too fluffy at the time. I don't know what it was, but, um, one of the reviews I picked is from Time Magazine. And here's what Time Magazine said. I got vision, brags Butch Cassidy, and the rest of the world wears bifocals. Unfortunately, the rest of the world includes the makers of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Every character, every scene is marred by the film's double view, which oscillates between sympathy and farce. As Butch and the Kid, respectively, Paul Newman and Robert Redford are afflicted with cinematic schizophrenia. One moment, they are sinewy, battered remnants of a discarded tradition. The next, they are low comedians whose chafing relationship and dialogue could have been lifted from a Batman and Robin episode. So maybe George Roy Hill was smart to take out the humor because he saw what the critics would see into it. Yeah, he really kept saying, even at that first test screening, one of his lines was, they laughed at my tragedy. Wow, that was a tragedy? Huh. It seems so Um, not like that. But you know what, Paul? I think this is a good point to actually take a second to talk to the expert in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. His name is Tom Hatch. He is an author who just wrote a book called The Last Outlaws, The Lives and Legends of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Welcome, Tom. So, Tom, you call Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid The Last Outlaws. And I was wondering why that. I was thinking like, oh, aren't Bonnie and Clyde coming later? Like, what makes Butch and Sundance the last outlaws to you? Well, Butch and Sundance happened to run into the 20th century where they were no longer chased by posses. They had a sophisticated system of crime fighting against them. And uh, they were basically the last outlaws because everyone was, was being caught. And uh, they, the only way they survived was by getting out of the country. I mean, uh, they, they were uh, uh, running into uh, telephones, electric lights, fencing, things like that, that uh, stopped them from uh, having that freedom that they had had before in the West. The West was no longer a place where you could just disappear. So they were basically the last ones in the uh, early 1900s when they took off and went to South America and and left the the scene for uh, people like Bonnie and Clyde and Dillinger and those people coming up just after them. And they 
were not outlaws, but gangsters. You know, that makes sense because I'm thinking about things like there's the famous Fort Worth Five photo that things coming up like photography helped catch them. And and I want to talk about that because I feel like photography is such an important part of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, too. They could they could rob a place and then immediately their images could be sent across the wires and people in all the towns around there would have it. And and so the net would close on them. So, you know, photography did have something to to do with it. And of course, that famous picture in San Antonio where they were stupid enough and ego enough to to sit there and and have the five of them uh, in a picture like that uh, that was put in the window. They didn't know it would be put in the window. They basically had it done to send to relatives and friends and brag a little bit because they were dressed like dandies. And they were typical cowboy-type people and and liked to, to drink and liked to gamble and liked the ladies. And so... They basically knew that the end was coming. So, Tom, you know, what we do on this show is we've been going through the AFI Top 100 list, which means we've already seen The Wild Bunch. And I I guess it never occurred to me until your book to really realize that these two stars of these two very different films to me, you know, The Wild Bunch and Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid, that they were friends, that they knew each other. Yeah, Butch and Sundance basically... uh... Butch was a little older, five years older, uh, but they basically hung out in the same places and probably met at a Thanksgiving dinner where they were both waiters, celebrity waiters, at the Bassett Ranch up in northern uh, Colorado. From then on, it it became a uh, Sundance became a sounding board because Butch was always the brains behind the the stick-ups. He was one of the greatest outlaws in planning a robbery in the history of the country. And that was basically because he put as much effort into the getaway as he did the actual heist. A lot of these stupid outlaws say, oh, yeah, we can stop the train and we can do this and get the payroll and take off. But then they'd have a posse on them or they didn't have a direction to go to that that was safe. Whereas Butch would would make the getaway uh, a lot more uh, easy for them because he would put relays of horses out, say, five miles down the road. So they'd get out there and they'd have fresh horses. So if a posse was chasing them, they could easily elude the posse. Butch was a happy-go-lucky big kid. The movie portrayed them as attractive, wisecracking outlaws and all this and 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 Butch was like that. He was basically a big kid. Sundance was a little more moody. He uh, had his spells. And he drank a little too much, which Butch didn't like. But uh, they got along well because they both came from religious families. They both uh, had a little bit of wanderlust and wanted to get out. Sundance was fascinating because he, uh, at one point, paid one dollar could buy a library card, and which was a, a large amount of money back then. So he loved to read, and he read all about Wild Bill Hickok and Billy the Kid and Jesse James and all these outlaws, and little did he know that his name would go down in history alongside theirs. I'm curious then, like, what would you love to see added to the movie? Like, what what is a scene that you just really wish was there? 
it's hard to say. I, I, I like their early life was, was so fascinating. I mean, Sun, Sundance was, was once caught on a jail escape and he jumped off a train going 100 miles an hour while he was handcuffed, for example, things like that. Then he made it through uh, all these places and was found in the attic by a little girl of this house that he <laughs> crawled into and uh, and got away, things like that. Also, Sundance uh, at one point was out in uh, in a blizzard and uh, could could have made it back to the ranch in time, but he knew one of his friends was out there, another cowboy, and so he went out and uh, uh, found this guy, and they let their horses have their head, and all night they were in a blinding whiteout of a blizzard and finally made it back to camp. They could have easily died. Now, as far as Butch and Sundance, uh, what they might have brought out more about was, you know, you've got your Jesse James and Billy the Kid and and, and those uh, outlaws, and they were cold-blooded killers. Sundance and Butch didn't kill a soul until, they, until the day they died, and they um, did not rob individuals ever. I mean, Jesse James once shot at a little girl that stuck her head out of a train window that they were robbing, and they would go in there and rob the individuals of their watches and purses and jewelry, whatever they could get. Butch and Sundance did not do that. They would only rob the rich bankers and the rich train uh, owners and uh, moguls out there in the West, like Harriman, for example, who came after them at the end and, and basically caused them to have to go. But they didn't bring out as much that they, they were not cold-blooded killers whatsoever. And so that wasn't brought out as much as that they were, they were basically decent people, if you could say that, about an outlaw. Uh, yes, they hurt a lot of rich people, but they also uh, spent that money with a lot of, uh, of, the, of the small people, the little people. They kind of called them a, a Robin Hood type character uh, at that point. And the movie did a pretty good job in bringing out Butch as being just a happy-go-lucky guy. He was a trick bicyclist also. That's something else that they did have on there while they played the song uh, Raindrops. They had him riding around on the bike and everything. And and that that's true to, to form right there. I didn't and, realize uh, that was real. And so they, you know, there were there were many things, but as far as an individual scene, I, I don't know. <laughs> There's just so much, you know. They have the scene where uh, where they blew up the train, and uh, the Union Pacific Overland Flyer in Wilcox, Wyoming, in June of 1889, and uh, Woodcock Charles Woodcock refused to open the express door, and so they put too much dynamite there to blow the door off and lit up the night for miles and miles and blew the car totally to pieces. There's a picture of it in, in my book of the car <laughs> during the aftermath. They, and so Woodcock came out, he was alive, but dazed and they got away with 30 to 50 grand in cash and gold and diamonds, things like that. But then <laughs> about uh, two months later, Actually, about three months later, they went on another raid of a Union Pacific passenger train. And who did they find when they knocked on the express door? Charles Woodcock was there. 
<laughs> he he, uh, he he opened the door for them that time. <laughs> he, he did not wait for them to blow the door to Kingdom Come. So, <laughs> well, I'm curious. You say you know, the day they died pretty definitively because I, I think a lot of people have tried to hope or theorize that Butch and Sundance made it out of Bolivia. You know that they never found the bodies of them, and they, there's been some talk of maybe they were seen back up in America. But you you do believe that they died in Bolivia, and I'm curious if you what you think of the theory that at the very end Butch actually shot Sundance and killed himself so that to, to put themselves out of their misery. Yeah, they were wounded and they they'd been shot to pieces. They weren't really fighting like at the end of the movie where they were surrounded by all those soldiers. A lot of it was villagers and there was some soldiers that were there in that village. And uh, uh, so basically uh, there has been sightings afterward. There were sightings of Butch, especially and uh, that he went back to Utah and lived out his life. And his sister, Lula, um, changed the date on his uh, his Mormon uh, baptism to a later date after. There were all, you know, these sightings. People said, oh, yeah, Butch came back. He wanted to see so-and-so and this and that. I, I, you know, it, it could have been. I, I'm not going to say it isn't. That's that's the fun thing, you know, the... Uh, Part of the appeal is the celebrated outlaws of the American West. They never die. You can bury them deep, but they never die. I mean, they've dug up Jesse James. They've dug up Billy the Kid. That You know, all, all of these people, Brushy Bill, Brocious claimed he was Billy the Kid living down in New Mexico 20 years ago and all this stuff. And uh, So you never know. And it's also uh, interesting that in the movie, Edda basically disappeared. And uh, there's no real evidence of where she went or why she went. And uh, and so I kind of figured that out in my book as well, where they were in Via Mercedes, Argentina in 1905, and they robbed a bank. And there was three of them that robbed the bank. Two of them were Butch and Sundance, and they don't know who the third one was. They got away with $90,000 in pesos. And it was right after this robbery that Etta, whose real name was not Etta Place, Place was was uh, Sundance's mother's maiden name, and he would often use an alias, Harry Place. And so we have no way of tracing at a place. I don't know how many emails I have received over the years since I wrote this book about people who say, gee, there's some people named Place, and I know they've got to be related to at a place. Sorry. (laughs) But we don't know her name. We know she was a sophisticated young lady, but she also might have been been a lady of the evening. We don't know. There's rumors to that effect. But after that, bank robbery in 1905 the three of them were riding away and a posse was after them and one of the three was shot and another one was supporting that person on the horse while they rode away and made their escape and so I speculate in the book that the person shot was Etta or the woman who called herself Etta and to be a little romantic about it which I am of course as a writer she died in Sundance's arms and is buried in an unmarked grave somewhere there near Via Mercedes, Argentina. 
on the route that they took to escape the bank because she was not heard of after that robbery. Another thing is uh, the Pinkertons knew they were in South America. That's another thing I don't think was brought out much in the movie. The Pinkertons knew that they were in South America and did not wish to come over and find them because it would cost too much money, even though it would be good for publicity for the Pinkerton agency. They just didn't want to do it. And there were a lot of cool things that, that weren't in the movie, things like in the, the Spanish-American War came up in 1898, and uh, Butch wanted the Wild Bunch to volunteer as a unit and go fight down in Cuba, like Teddy Roosevelt going up San Juan Hill. He wanted them, but they were turned down, supposedly. They didn't, they didn't want them as outlaws. Kind of reminds me of Vietnam when the Hells Angels Motorcycle Club wanted to volunteer <laughs> and go to Vietnam and end the war right there. The Pinkertons were trailing them all the time. And one agent named Charlie Seringo, who wrote a, uh, an autobiography, which is a little bit embellished, but there was some truth to it. He was very attracted to Butch's sister when he went to look for Butch. And Butch would have just flipped if he didn't know that a lawman was in love with his sister. Nothing came of it because he knew that this wasn't going to work. And uh, so he he left that. And there's things like Sundance owned a bar in Calgary, Canada, for really? example, with a, with a partner. Yeah, he owned a bar with a partner and found out the partner was stealing from him. So one day he went in and stuck a gun in his nose and took his share of the money out of the cash register and came back to the States. So <laughs> things up there, there were things like that, but um, uh, they were both very interesting characters because they, um, they were just guys to begin with. They weren't legendary or icons or anything like you think of them now. And I can look at them as just being guys, Butch growing up, he loved animals. He worked on a ranch his own plus others from, from an early age. He had 12 brothers and sisters, and he was their, basically their surrogate father in a way, and he'd organize games like grasshopper races and things like that. <laughs> he, got, he got arrested when he was a teenager because he, he was working for a nearby ranch, and he, he needed a pair of jeans. So he went into town, and the store was closed. So he broke in the back door, got a pair of jeans, and, of course, a piece of pie because he was a hungry teenager and left a note saying, hey, I'll, I'll pay you next time I come to town. So what happens? Boom, the sheriff's out there at the ranch and arrests him. And he <laughs> started right then having a dislike of authority. <laughs> and then he met a met a guy named Mike Cassidy on that ranch and Mike led him astray. They started uh, doing a little rustling until... Butch had to leave town and went to Telluride, Colorado, where he did his first uh, first racket, his first robbery. But anyway, the uh, uh, Butch uh, was was a happy-go-lucky guy, whereas Sundance could be a little moody. And one day he was eating the cereal for breakfast in one of their hideouts, I think the hole in the wall. And one of the other outlets, uh, outlaws said to him, Oh, that stuff sure looks terrible. I don't know how you can eat that. So Sundance said, pour yourself a bowl. <laughs> the guy, what? <laughs> yeah, you pour yourself a bowl and eat it. <laughs> so the guy poured himself a bowl and ate it. Said, yeah, this, this isn't bad. 
this is pretty good. So Sundance <laughs> had this intimidating factor about him where he could look at people and, and they kind of shivered. So, Well, that's a commercial if I've ever seen one. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Mikey, <laughs> he likes it. <laughs> well, Tom, yeah. this has been so fun. Thank you so much for talking to us about this real history. Sure. You know, it adds so much to the film. Oh, wow. So much. So much came out of this. I mean, and one of the most important things I think that came out of this movie, um, there's no clip for it, but uh, the Hole in the Wall Gang, which is a camp that Paul Newman set up uh, for children and their families coping with cancer and other serious illnesses and conditions. And it's just an amazing organization. I've heard about it through my entire life. I've had people who've worked there and uh, people who've raised money for it and it's just uh, Paul Newman, really a fantastic uh, charitable guy, and and I love that Butch Cassidy and Sundance uh, Kid live on in this in this very cool camp. Amy, uh, let me save my my biggest reveal here for last. Did you know that there is one person who knows where Butch Cassidy is buried? Go on. All right, so it's Butch Cassidy's uh, sister. Now today, you know where Butch Cassidy is buried. Yes. And that is our secret. When we got the word, this letter was signed, Jeff. And he said he was laid away nicely. And, uh, and that, was my, that was our secret. My father said he had hunted him all his life. Now he's going to rest in peace. And that never, never yet has been told. My children don't know. My father always said, if you want to keep a secret, don't tell it. And I find that's the truth. <laughs> oh, my so goodness. Yeah. So the sister knows. And uh, and now that's that secret is in no one will never know. No one will ever be able to find him. He will have truly escaped the law because no one will ever know where he is. You it's don't the think she escape. wrote it down? Oh, my God. <laughs> <gasps> well, at least he lives on in, of course, a little show called The Simpsons. Uh, this is from yes. an episode called Duffless. And in this episode, Homer Simpson decides he has to quit drinking beer. He's going to try to go 30 days without drinking a beer. And we're going to pick up at the end of the episode. He has gone the 30 days without drinking beer. And he is sitting at Moe's Tavern. Put it in the fridge, Mo. I've got a date with my wife. You'll be back. And so will you. And you. And you. Of course I'll be back. If you didn't close, I'd never leave. Raindrops keep falling on my head. But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red. La 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 Because I'm free Nothing's worrying Oh, wow. There you go. Isn't I mean, that romantic? It's very romantic. And I would say, how would you have liked that end scene of The Simpsons if it was Simon and Garfunkel's feeling groovy, which was the original, or I guess they were toying with the idea of making that the song instead of raindrops keep falling on my head, which would have been so weird. But That's terrible. That would be so dating. That's like the jitterbug that they took out of The Wizard of Oz. Groovy? I mean, that, but, that would immediately be dated. 
But look, I mean, Catherine Ross and Robert Redford's haircuts in this movie are not 1880s cuts either. Um, I mean, by the way, Paul Newman hated raindrops keep falling on my head. And I I kind of see it. That scene is, I know it's iconic, but it's so weird. It's such a weird thing. I, I don't know. Uh, Amy, we're coming down to our final episode. Can you believe it? No, that's insane. I'm so sad. Can't we just freeze frame here and never finish? I know, I know. This is so, uh, wow. I can't believe it's already here. And what better way to end than on a film that uh, I think many people, if you were to ask them what their favorite movie of all time is, might answer Casablanca, right? I mean, I think this is a, a very, it's such a huge hit. And we save a special just for the end. We did. We did. A film that's all about a powerful ending. Oh, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm so sad. But we are not going anywhere. We've already announced we're, we're here for to stay. So the show may change, but the list is over. You know, Amy, Casablanca is such a quotable film, but we know all the voices that the quotes come from. I mean, they're so Peter Laurie and Humphrey Bogart. What if next week you call in doing another famous voice doing those lines. So like, how would Borat say, play it again, Sam? Or how would Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, say goodbye uh, at the airport? You know, like mix and match your impressions. Take an unlikely candidate to be in Casablanca and do some of the classic lines. (laughs) I like that. I like that. Oh, man. I hope somebody does something really obscure or hard. All right, so give us your impressions. They don't have to be great. They just have to be vaguely recognizable. At 747-666-5824. 747-666-5824 as we tackle Casablanca. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.